on May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount+. Plus. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Welcome to a special off-season podcast presented by Inside Carolina. I'm your host and former Tar Heel football player, Taylor Vipolis, and joining me today... It's technically my boss at Meadowlark Media with the Dan Lebitard Show, former president of ESPN and fellow Carolina alum, John Skipper, class of 78. John, first, thank you for the time today. And second, I've been accused of being a Carolina plant placed here by yourself to push a pro-UNC narrative around Miami. Can you either confirm or deny those reports? Well, uh, uh, what do you think? I think it's a good idea. I did not plan it, but having said that, I think you should try to make sure to counter some of that crazy Miami stuff they uh, talk on the air. Last time I checked, I believe we beat them this year in football. Yeah. Um, and uh, But they may have beaten us in basketball, so I shouldn't get too carried away. Yeah, I'm going to miss the yearly playing of the Miami football team because at this point, we, we've just been penciling them in as wins. I think it's been five straight uh, since Mac Brown has taken over. But you are from Lexington, North Carolina. What were some of your earliest memories of UNC? Um, well, my earliest memories of UNC would have been the mostly about basketball, right? The basketball tournament. As a kid, I used to go over to the Big Four in Greensboro, which was a preseason tournament with North Carolina, Duke State, and um, Wake Forest. I'll tell you a dirty secret, which is as a kid, I was an NC State fan, uh, and my brother was a Duke fan. So uh, uh, we both saw the right thing to do when we went actually to go to college uh, and prepare ourselves academically for the world. We all knew Chapel Hill was the right place to go, but I was early on an NC State fan. So I did get to enjoy that uh, 1974 championship uh, from David Thompson before I switched my allegiance. Yeah, growing up in New York, I was kind of unaware of the rivalries between Duke and North Carolina and NC State. And I kind of went back and forth between Duke and North Carolina. That's not something I publicly share either, just depending on which team was kind of better that year. And I think about 2005, the Sean May team, that's kind of when I started to realize, oh, Duke and North Carolina really hate each other. I have to pick a side. I'm choosing Carolina. So how did you wind up at Carolina as a as a state fan? And did you you mentioned your brother? Did you have someone in the family attend Carolina before you or were you the first one? No, I'm not only the first one to Carolina. I'm the first one in my family to go to college. Uh, I'm at Carolina because it was 75 miles north of where I grew up in Lexington, North Carolina. Um, I did not visit any schools. I only applied to one school. That was Carolina. It was in the days when if you could read and write 
and you were a North Carolina resident, you got into Carolina. Uh, it's much harder now, but it was a, it was the only real choice for me. I also was a liberal arts major. Uh, that's where I wanted to be. The first day I ever was in Chapel Hill or on the campus was the day I moved into Teague Dormitory, uh, and my parents said goodbye. And uh, I'm ashamed to say I jumped up and down with how happy I was to be away from home. And I think I went to get a six pack of beer, which was legal at the time because 18 was a drinking age. And uh, believe it or not, they had a keg party on the lawn to welcome all incoming freshmen. My guess is you did not get that welcome. No, <laughs> different, different orientation weekend for me, for sure. What yeah. was your experience at the school like during during your years in Chapel Hill? It was spectacular, right? I, I really had not even been certain I was going to go to a four-year college and going there changed my life, right? I met people from around the state, from the Northeast, from the West Coast. Uh, I had smart professors who certainly moved me into a different kind of intellectual sphere. Uh, and it, uh, as I say, changed my life. A professor from Carolina helped me get into Columbia to graduate school. Coming to New York changed my life. So uh, I have nothing but the best of memories uh, from my days at North Carolina. From your days at North Carolina, football coach Bill Dooley, I hear from from my experience as a football player, fans of an older age longing for the days of the toughness that you saw from the Bill Dooley teams. What do you remember most from those football days? I do not long for those days. Uh, with one exception, they didn't know how to tackle and tackling has been a big problem for us in the last few years. As uh, someone who watched the Appalachian State game last year, as someone who was at the Georgia Tech game uh, in Chapel Hill, and I think they scored 60-plus points on us. That's it. Other than that, it was boring. Uh, it was the, the, the years of tailback U at Carolina, uh, Mike Voigt and Boom Boom Betterson, both gained a thousand yards in the same season when I was there. Famous Amos Lawrence came in my last year or two. Every year we had a thousand yard runner, but in the Bill Dooley offense, it took about 350 carries to get a thousand yards. <laughs> uh, we used to get to the football game and we would have a fake bet, which was, what do you think Carolina will run on the first play? Cause we knew on the first play, Every game during my entire existence there, you can look up and probably find it's wrong, but this is my memory. We ran off tackle to the tailback for three yards. That was our first play. Then we ran uh, either off tackle on the right side or went to the left side to fool them and, and gained three more yards. And then we ran back to the other side and gained three yards. Now it was fourth and one. And what do you think we did? Ran off we the punted. Tackle. After oh, proving punted. that we could gain three <laughs> yards on every play, we punted because Bill Dooley was a position football guy uh, uh, who never took a chance. My friend John Swafford, by the way, has a great story about Bill Dooley. Uh, John Swafford, if you didn't know this, was the last quarterback at the University of North Carolina to complete every pass he threw in a game. Wow. He, he was five for five. You know what the big problem was? No, what was that? Uh, Carolina players only caught two of the five. <laughs> they, they went, they the, went opposing to the, team. Team, the opposing <laughs> team caught three of his passes. And that was the last time he ever played quarterback. And I think he told me that that's when Bill Dooley said, that's why we don't pass. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, maybe the problem was the quarterback. Yeah. Uh, 
There. I was going to say the the punting on fourth and one that was before the the analytic days where where now coaches are like maybe maybe we should go for it a, a bit more. We never win. It would be fourth and fourth and one inch on the fifty yard line, and we wouldn't go. Every game was played between ten and twenty points. I believe that every if you look at every result, it's seventeen to fourteen, fourteen to ten, fourteen to seven, so twenty one to fourteen, twenty one to seventeen. <laughs> That was an offensive fireworks show if we got up to 21, 24 points in those days. You've seen the the evolution of football from those 7-3 games to the 63-61 the games we saw this past season in App State. What was the, the no-shot clock, four corners era of basketball like? It was great because we won. Uh, almost every time I was exactly contemporaneous with Phil Ford. So Phil Ford was the point guard while I was there. He's a national player of the year, at least once, maybe twice. And if we went into the four corners. I think it is accurate. Again, recollection at, at this point is a tricky matter sometimes, but I believe it's the case that every game we went into the four corners in the four years I was there, we won except once. When we went to the four corners against Marquette in the final in 1977, we uh, we had a badly banged up team. Uh, they led, Marquette led most of the way. They had a good team. I, uh, Bernard Toon was on that team and Jerome Whitehead and I think Butch Lee. Uh, we had a great team. Uh, Phil, Phil Ford, Walter Davis, uh, Cupjack was injured. John Cooster uh, was there, Bruce, Bruce Buckley. Um, and I'm forgetting somebody. But uh, uh, we Tom, had a great team. Tom Lagarde, I think, was injured too. Well, Tom Lagarde was out of out for yeah, the season, February, uh, and it it was one of the great times at, at Carolina. I think it was still a, a field of thirty two. We beat Notre Dame on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, that and they had a great team. We beat Kentucky uh, in the finals of the regional. We beat UNLV uh, before losing to Marquette. Carolina is a a rare school where. Some of our teams that didn't win the title are are just as good as teams that that did win the title. You mentioned the the 76-77, you have the 93-94 with Stacks, uh Rashid Wallace, Montrose, the 97-98 Antoine and Vince, 11-12 with Marsh Kendall Marshall breaks his wrist, uh Harrison yeah. Barnes on that team, Zeller, Henson, my last year as a student at Carolina was the 16-17 where we lose to uh, Villanova on the buzzer beater. What do you think or what would you consider is the the best team that that never won a title at Carolina? Well, that team, uh, I was at the Final Four when North Carolina played um, Utah, uh, and that was uh, that was a Jamison Stackhouse team, right? I believe so, 97-98. Yeah, and um, they also had Brendan Haywood, who was mostly on the bench, Mokhtar Jai, uh, I think Shimon Williams. We were loaded. Uh, they had a very good team, too. Hannah Matola, uh, it, oddly enough, was after Van Horn had graduated, but it was Hannah Matola, Andre Miller, um, and uh, a big guy's name I can't remember. Um, but uh, we should have won that game. Mokhtar Jai got three fouls. In the great Carolina tradition of you get uh, uh, two or three fouls in the first half and you're done, yeah. he was done. Brendan Haywood hadn't played all year. Guthridge played a very short rotation, and we lost to a um, uh, to a uh, very good Utah team who lost to Kentucky in the final. 
what do you remember most about the the narrative around Dean Smith before he won his first title? Because in hindsight, he's propped up as one of the best coaches to ever coach college basketball. We could say he's he's one of the best coaches ever now, but before 1982, when he when he does win the first title, it seems like if it was a completely different story. Um, look, he was when I was there, he was saintly, right? Everybody revered Dean Smith. And even though we had great teams that didn't win, people were worried that Dean would never win. He still was idolized, right? Everybody loved Dean Smith. Uh, I was there before they hung him in effigy, right? By the time I got there, everybody was happy. We figured he'd win at some point. And then if he didn't win, it would be because he wasn't willing to sacrifice his principles to win. The worst, actually, I got a different answer for you on the best team to never win. We should never have lost to Indiana uh, when Jordan uh, was a junior. And that is uh, a good one. And Dean took him out. He got two fouls, and Dean sat him for 14 minutes. You know the old famous uh, quote that the only person who could hold Michael Jordan to 16 points a game was Dean Smith. Uh, <laughs> and Dean, the only criticism we ever had of Dean. Uh, and we believe he walked on water, was, you know, at some point, call a timeout. If the other team is making a 5-0 run, a 10-0 run, a 15-0 run, you don't need that timeout at the end of the game that you're saving for. But Dean had a way he did things, and he was going to do them. And, again, he, uh, I think he may have been the best person who ever was a great basketball coach. I want to get into your time as president at ESPN and, and how it relates to UNC, but in true Levitard show fashion, I have a top five list of UNC nicknames and I wanted to get your opinion on it. There's one okay. that I have now that you mentioned earlier that I'm adding to my outside looking in. And that is James boom, boom, Betterson. It's a great name. Boom, boom, Betterson. <laughs> the nickname yeah. is kind of a, a, a dying trend in, in sports. I'm kind of noticing. Do you feel that well, one? Uh, yes, and remember, he was followed by famous Amos Lawrence. He's followed on this list, too, by famous Amos Lawrence, number five. Excellent. Number four, I have Charlie Choo Choo Justice. Choo Choo is a pretty great pretty great name. And I, I, that's a little before my time, even, Taylor. I know that's odd that there was a time uh, at Carolina before me, but I think he played way back in the 30s. Uh <laughs> Uh, not the forties. And, uh, uh, I was, uh, I, I was busy over in Europe fighting the war. Number three, I have Billy Cunningham, the kangaroo kid. Kangaroo kid. That's great. I brought that up yesterday. I had somebody in here who was a Philly fan and I'm like, do you remember or know about the kangaroo kid? He had no idea. <laughs> no idea. Number two, I'm pretty sure this was, he was on campus the same time as you. Dudley Bradley, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, Dudley Bradley was unbelievable. Long arms, long fingers, and uh, a lockdown defender. That's a good one. And then the number one, the, the best nickname at UNC with the backstory, George Glamick, who was nicknamed the Blind Bomber because of his poor eyesight and remarkably accurate hook shot. And from, from his Wikipedia page, it says he was ambidextrous when on the court, but also so nearsighted that the ball was a, merely a dim object and he never looked where he was shooting. And he he just looked at the, the black lines on the court and 
by doing that, he knew where he was in reference to the basket. And to this day, his 45 points against Clemson in 1941, still the fourth highest total in UNC single game history. Points for a guy who can't see. Uh, you got there's a lot more. You, you 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 could go to ten. There's Silent Sam. Okay. Sam Perkins. Okay. With Silent Sam, and, and that was when that uh, heinous statue was on the yep. uh, campus called Silent <laughs> Sam, but they called Sam Perkins that. Uh, and of course, there of course is uh, Air Jordan, but he wasn't called that when he was at Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, I was right. trying to. I was trying to take into account. The goat's a pretty good nickname, by the way. The goat. That is. You that can is. maybe take that to number one. I was trying to take into account their time at Carolina. And I also had uh, uh, easy, easy at Coda in, in yeah. my outside, in my outside looking yeah. in. But as the president, former president of ESPN, do you have a favorite moment from your time there, where where you looked around and you were like, "I can't believe I'm here." Uh, I did that almost daily. Uh, I don't know if you mean in relation to my Carolina ship. The, yeah, maybe both. The, but but maybe the the time I remember that was the best was being in the end zone of the Rose Bowl. Uh, Vince Young and Texas playing um, Matt Leinart and USC. And I think Reggie Bush may have been on that team also. Yeah. And on the last play of the game, I was standing – just outside of bounds in the end zone when Vince Young ran and on the final play of the game, I think they beat them either 41 to 38 or 38 to 35 best college football game I've ever seen. And uh, I got to stand on the end zone because I worked uh, for ESPN. New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. How you survive, you make quick, smart decisions. If you never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. That that is a great one. That was one of the first games I remember as my introduction to college football, where my dad uh, was born and raised in Italy, so I don't really have the connection to American sports that a lot of kids do growing up. Mm-hmm. But that was the first game I remember watching and thinking, like, whatever this is, I need more of it in my life. And that was kind yeah. of the the thing that got the the ball rolling in in college football, but. You mentioned in the nicknames, Michael Jordan, the GOAT. Do you have any moments from, from your time at ESPN where, where you cross paths with Michael Jordan? Not really. Um, when um, when he came out with Air Jordans, I stood in line at Macy's department store because I'd moved to New York to get him to sign the box because he was sitting there. And uh, I said to him, I, by the way, I went to Carolina, you know, and I don't even think he looked up. 
He was busy <laughs> signing shoes. So no, I don't have any great big encounters with Michael Jordan. Uh, the last dance maybe, uh, which uh, I did the business deal before I left ESPN was the closest I came to encountering Michael Jordan in a profound way. I have some moments like that where, where I see somebody, I'm like, if I get even a, a second or two window, I know what, what my line's going to be. Now I'm a little bit worried if I ever cross paths with, with Michael Jordan. If, if I go to that line, he's, he's just going to keep looking somewhere else. I think he's a hard guy to impress at this <laughs> point. Um, I did also, we didn't mention, uh, of course, Walter Sweet D. Davis. Oh, that's uh, a good one. And I once played a pickup game against Walter Davis in Woolen Gym in which he eviscerated me. He will not remember it because he did that fairly regularly. But we had a very good team. Woolen Gym, I think they still play games there. Woolen Gym, you played games to seven. There was no three-pointer at the time. It was make them, take them. And uh, there will be 10 games going at once. We have a good team. My uh, Walter Davis is, comes walking across to the, to the uh, thing, and I go, I got him. And uh, I think he scored seven times. Uh, we I don't think we ever got the ball. And I thought, <laughs> I'm never going to be that foolish again. It also was the moment. You know that 93% of all men think that they were just dedication away from playing in the NBA, the NFL, or MLB. Yeah. Uh, I, after that day with Michael, with Walter Davis, I never thought that again. <laughs> I appreciate the the willingness to want to be the guy to take on that assignment. But when you mentioned Will and Jim, that got me also thinking from your time at Carolina, the games were Carmichael Arena. How would you compare the the viewing experience from Carmichael Arena to like the Dean Dome today? Well, Carmichael, um, Carmichael was much louder, uh, much rowdier, much tighter, right? I mean, it was a ten, about 10,000 seats. Um and uh, I loved it. I saw Phil Ford's last game from the rafters. I sat in the very back row, and you still felt the noise, the feeling. I think he scored like 35 points to beat Duke that game. So it was happy. I don't think I missed a basketball game when I was there. And to see a basketball game, you had to miss a full day of classes. Uh, because in those days, you had to go sit in the seats starting at like 9 in the morning. Uh, and uh, so – I, I, it's great that they can fit 20 some thousand people in the Dean dome, but I don't think that the ecstatic experience is, is as good as Carmichael. That was fun, yeah, but not, not the same yeah, as when you think of UNC and ESPN, the, the first name you usually think of is the late great Stuart Scott. I remember mm -hmm. watching sports center growing up and, and seeing how cool he made sports when he was doing the highlights with his pop culture references with you both being Tar Heels, what was your relationship with Stuart like? Uh, Stuart was a fabulous guy. I felt very close to him. Uh, I watched him. I'll, I'll never forget. It's um, it's awful to remember in a way. We were at a Monday night football game in Pittsburgh, and I got a call in the middle of the night that Stuart had been rushed to the hospital. I got a relieved call the, a couple of days later that he had appendicitis, and everything was great when they biopsied the appendix. They discovered it was cancerous, uh, and he. I watched him with great courage and perseverance continue to do Sports Center, to continue to work hard. He, he's one of the best guys I've ever known, and and the company, everyone at the company, did him. I'd go by to see him at 11 p.m. Uh, for the sport late night Sports Center. He'd do Sports Center, and then he would put his head on the desk, 
put his arms around it the way you'd fall asleep, right? Uh, trying to study because he would be exhausted because between the chemotherapy and the radiation and continuing to do his job, uh, he really was an, an inspiring guy, wonderful guy. When when he was coming up and he was first being put on TV, was there ever any pushback because of what he was doing was so different with a, a non-athlete African-American broadcaster bringing in all these kind of catchphrases? Um, well, I wasn't there when uh, Stuart started doing that. Having spoken to everybody who was there when he did it, I can't find anybody who says they opposed it. Oh, but wow. everybody says that everybody else opposed it. So, yes, there was a lot of feeling that you, as a sports center anchor, you needed to basically fit into a role and you needed to conform to the show, not the other way around. Chris Berman, of course, famously subverted that. And then Stewart was the first person to subvert that as a uh, African-American who came in speaking the way he felt comfortable. And yes, it was a lot of pushback, no matter what it, that everybody tells me there was not. <laughs> the, the talk of the off seasons right now for Carolina has been around conference realignment. They had the Magnificent Seven report. I also saw a report from uh, Noah Monroe from the Daily Tar Heel. Each SEC school is expected to receive about $68 million um, in their in their new TV deal, while ESPN will only pay ACC schools $17 million. Big Ten's new deal, schools could see returns north of $70 million after UCLA and USC complete their moves. What do you think North Carolina's future is with conference realignment? Um, I think North Carolina uh, should remain in the ACC. It's their natural home. By the way, all these schools, you know, clamoring for how are we going to get more money, there always seems to be the assumption that if they could get out of the grant of rights, they would just go to the SEC or the Big Ten. I don't think the SEC or the Big Ten has extended any of those schools an invitation. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the SEC has already said they're happy at 16 and they have very little reason to add teams that are in states in which they already have a member. There's no more money. Um, so I don't think there's an obvious place to go. I have a funny thought for you. What I think the ACC should do is go get eight teams out of the Pac-12 and form the APCC, the Atlantic Pacific College Conference. Uh, and that would increase, take their footprint to include all of the West Coast. Those schools would not have to travel that often to play. And because the ACC network would be expanding its footprint, there would be more money available. And I think you could force a renegotiation because the Pac-12 is out of contract or will be. Uh, that to me is the is a route to go. If they don't go there, I'd go get Stanford. I'd go add Stanford, add the state of California. It brings a lot more money in. Uh, and use that. I would try to figure out ways to get more money out of the basketball tournament. But I, I don't, I, I don't know, Taylor. You have Tar Heel loyalties. Do you want to see Carolina playing in Madison and State College and Iowa and Minnesota? I don't. I want to see them playing Duke and State and Wake and Virginia and Georgia Tech and Miami. Those are their natural rivals. And people also forget. You tell us some of this. Uh, uh, gets me going. Uh, you know, Rutgers is in the Big Ten. Does anybody want to change place with Rutgers and their athletic prowess? 
So it's not just about money. It's also about coaches, it's about fans, it's about merchandise and ticket sales and sponsors and boosters and now NIL. Uh, they have to figure out a way to compete. But I don't think the way to compete is to run jump over uh, on the uh, into the arms of the Big Ten or the SEC. There, as Jim Phillips said at the at the meeting they just finished, they're third, and they should work hard to be as close a third as they can be, and that's a pretty good place. And by the way, if they're third, that means the Pac-12 is behind them, and uh, they should go get some of those schools and bring them into the ACC. You have to – the SEC and the Big Ten have always been more aggressive, have been aggressive. So has the ACC when they expanded, and they need to – I would like to see them be aggressive again. You were at ESPN during the the ACC um, negotiations. How strong do you think the the grant of rights is? Where it seems like some they're looking for for ways out of it, but you know we we keep hearing about talks about wanting to get out of it, but it seems there's got to be something pretty strong in it where teams just can't you know pick up and move overnight. I, I am pretty sure that we at ESPN asked them to do that in order for us to make the commitment to start the network and to do that. So I, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I haven't read it. If I did read it, I forgot it. I'm assuming it's very, very strong because it was written to be unable to break. Yeah, I, I, I would have to imagine that is the case. And when you were talking about uh, if I would want to see North Carolina at other places. I, I love North Carolina in the ACC. The only places I would want a road trip are, are some schools in the SEC. Like if I could get a, a home and home with Tennessee, I would love to go to Knoxville for a game. Oxford, uh, Mississippi, I would love to see the grow for a game. But overall, I do think I like North Carolina in the ACC. But one one thing I've, I feel like I've heard too with the ACC is that it has a narrative problem where their their schools have a a ton of success in, in the tournament, but for some reason they're getting you know five teams in the in the tournament in comparison to the Big Ten who who gets ten and you see what schools like Purdue do when when they do get into the tournament and then here comes North Carolina and Duke and Miami to the Elite Eight and the Final Fours. How much of the ACC's problem do you think is one of a a, a narrative and not having somebody being the one who who's kind of propping them up and saying we're we're just as good as some of these other conferences that's a it's a, it's a question I, i'm not sure i i have a a good answer for taylor i had not thought of it that way before um the uh I, it by it, it sort of blurs my mind every time i listen to them talking about quadrants and who's played in the strength of schedule I mean, there's a lot to be said for just looking at the teams and figuring out who do you want to go and and who should be there. And, yeah, I'm often surprised when the ACC doesn't get more in uh, uh, to the tournament. And you've seen behind the scenes negotiating the, these massive TV deals, how much money goes into college athletics. What have you thought of the introduction of the name, image, and likeness, NIL, to where – athletes are now able to see a part of the revenue coming in and able to profit, even though it's not coming from the NCAA's pockets. Um, look, I, I feel that the players have had a legitimate grievance that they are um, doing a lot of work, bringing a, model, a lot of money into the university. 
Um, given everything that's gone down, it is sometimes hard to suggest that um, that uh, th I, I don't want to denigrate the value of a North Carolina or a Clemson or a Florida State um, education, but it kind of feels like they should get paid something uh, for doing that. I find the NIL thing to be a little clumsy. It's going to be clearly abused and things are going to come out and people are going to do ridiculous things. So I don't think it's a perfect instrument, but I do think it's a bit of a step in the right direction. Yeah. And NIL, the, the, the biggest complaint with that is how hard it is to regulate what schools are doing and the big schools with the, the big donor bases will dominate the, the sports landscape. But in a, in a sense, they've already been doing that with, with teams like Alabama. What do you think college sports will look like in, in five years or even 10 years? And how much will, will it be unrecognizable from, from what it was just a couple of years ago? Um, I think that it will continue. There will continue to be more money poured into it. I think the student athletes in men's and women's basketball and football will continue to look more and more like professional athletes playing for university. We should remember that lots and lots of uh, students play other sports, have a very different experience than those players have. A lot of the same experience, a lot of time, a lot of dedication, a lot of work, but, but, hard to argue that the some of the other teams are bringing in the kind of revenues that would justify the schools paying them but but um i think it'll look very different i also think the landscape will continue to change and you'll continue to have bifurcation between the big powerful rich schools and the other schools uh one thing that i can foresee happening in the not too distant future is it bifurcating for the ncaa tournament the men's basketball tournament. By the way, it I don't know that it'll be the NCAA tournament for that much longer. Uh, if you're looking for ways to get more revenue and you're a big school, somebody is already having some discussions about why are we dividing all that money for the NCAA tournament among 300 schools? Why don't we divide it between 64 schools who play in four big power conferences? Great insight. That is all we have time for this week on this special offseason podcast presented by Inside Carolina. Appreciate everybody who's watching and listening. And of course, thank you, John, so much for the time and, and all the uh, insights you were able to provide today. That was fun, Tyler. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.